When you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. In each episode, I will dig deep to uncover the mindsets that turn adversity into advantage. Hey, it's Simon, and welcome to episode four of Turning the Tables. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered whether the work you were doing was compromising your values and who you were as a person? Have you ever felt judged because of your age? In this episode, I'm joined by Francine Lawrence, whose career has seen her be editor of one of Britain's top magazines, a journalistic portrait photographer, an illustrator, and now an art teacher, helping people like most of us, I suspect, and certainly me, who don't think they can draw. Our conversation spans the glamour of publishing the 80s to the struggle to overcome age prejudice. It was terrible, actually. Every day I would go to work and feel like I was fighting a battle for all the people who were older. And now to a new sense of happiness and fulfilment with the work she's doing. We started our conversation by talking about the twists and turns of Francine's journey. Okay, welcome, Francine, to Turning the Tables. You've had a very eclectic career, I think would be the fair way to put it. Graphic design, magazine editing, photography, journalism, and now teaching art. I'm sure everybody would love to hear about that world you've been in. Yes, it's a CV nightmare. <laughs> it doesn't have a logical path. I was a rebel. I went to art school. I think that could be a good theme through my life. I went to art school in the early 70s at a time when, you know, everyone was crazy and um, having a good time and doing things. And then I um, got sensible and got a job as a graphic designer in advertising agencies and things like that. And that's been a theme definitely through my life, art. Then I was obsessed by magazines, got a job in a magazine working as a designer. That was great fun. And then I worked my way through magazines as a designer to being an art director, to jumping to the other side of the fence when I was art directing a magazine called Country Living. And then the editor left and I became the editor. That was a very interesting jump. What drove you down that path, the sort of artistic writing path? I think going, I think I was always good at English. I was always good at art at school. And so it was always, you know, which way was I going to go? And so um, the rebellious side of me, well, the headmaster said, we don't want you at school anymore. So um, basically my parents were a bit shocked and um, they bundled me off to art school. And by studying graphic design was a wonderful way of combining my literary English skills with my artistic skills. So that was a, a very good marriage. And, and of course, you know, being in the 70s, I thought I can use graphic design to change the world, you know, by getting messages across. So uh, a driver in me thinking that I could not only be an art director, but edit as well. So I did that. Uh, I was very lucky. I became the editor of Country Living. It was a bit of a shock for my te- my art team who uh, and the whole team on the magazine who, you know, one day I was a rebellious art director and the next day I was the editor in my sort of shoulder pads and lipstick because it was, um, you know... That the, time. It was that time, but wonderfully enjoyable. I mean, what a dream job. It was fantastic. Country Living is was definitely one of the sort of iconic magazines of that era. I guess it still is. 
Yes, and I think that also we we came at a time where it was just the zeitgeist was right. People were rejecting high tech and I have to say it did coincide with that, you know, people getting second homes in the country, which I feel slightly iffy about. But also we wanted to, that bit of me that wanted to do good, we supported farmers uh, because they were going through a terrible time. So what was that really, that that philanthropic maybe um, is a word to use, was that part of the ethos of the magazine that, you know, you personally, Felt I always felt was that, important. yes, and I think it's something my mother instilled into me that you have to use your skills to do good. Um, so I was always aware that if I had a skill that I must in some way use it for good, but if we could use it to get some great messages across, then why not? And so, yes, there was a little bit of me. Unfortunately, I worked with a team of people who felt the same way. And so we were always trying to do things for, you know, to help um, the environment, support wildlife groups and so on. Were you sort of given free reign to send it in the direction you thought was right? At the beginning, absolutely. Because the magazine was started as a one-off magazine, as an offshoot of Good Housekeeping, we were, I and two colleagues were in the unique position of not really having anyone breathing down our neck, except the editor at that time of Good Housekeeping, who was a wonderful woman called Charlotte Lessing, who just had this vision, let us do what we wanted. And so we produced the magazine we wanted to read not knowing if it's going to be a success or not. Well, it, it just was. And it was the most wonderful, exciting thing ever. The thing just took off. And we had to reprint within about two weeks. And people were nagging at news agents saying, I want a copy of this, I want a copy of that. What do you think was driving that, you know, in terms of the, of the public interest in that lifestyle at the time? I think for every action, there's a reaction, isn't there? And there was, it was the 80s, we're talking 1986, and people were looking for, we just had this big, big high-tech thing where people were having, you know, those rubber floors in their kitchen and everything was made of tubular steel and you had kitchens where you couldn't actually find the handle of the cupboard because they were in shiny black smooth and everything had to be very hard and I think that there was a reaction against that. People would probably from the outside think that the publishing world and being an editor is an incredibly glamorous life. Was that the reality? Yes, I had an expense account at Harvey Nichols because I had to look the part. I was constantly wooed by, um, once the advertisers realised that we were a successful vehicle, then they all wanted a piece of the action and they wanted uh, me to come to lunches for weekends away. And, you know, I think perhaps the peak of my career was being flown by British Airways on Concorde to Barbados for the weekend. So, yeah, pretty glamorous. Not bad. Obviously, you moved on from country living. What was your sort of driver beyond that? Okay, well, as I described, I had this dream job, this lovely lifestyle where I was combining my writing skills with my artistic skills because I was directing photographic shoots and commissioning artists and illustrators. So I was pretty much doing what I wanted to do. But when the... The success of the magazine meant that the advertisers were calling the shots. And also, when things got a little bit difficult, I was being asked to put in features about subjects I did not feel comfortable about. I was totally against fur farming, and yet I was asked to, by, to put in features about how wonderful it was to wear fur 
Well, I didn't agree with fur farming, so I refused to do that. And then things got a little bit uncomfortable. And I felt that my life wasn't quite my the dream that it was. I was working very hard. I was going to meetings. I was talking about goals and targets. I was becoming a manager. Um, inevitably, although I had a fantastic team, people are never happy with their titles or their holiday or whatever. And I thought, do you know what? I need a holiday. I need a holiday. But I need something more than a holiday. I was actually losing my own identity. I really was. It was clear at this point that the glamour of the role of a magazine editor was starting to compromise Francine's values and raised questions in her mind about what she wanted to do with her life. What happened was I realised that it wasn't just, I didn't need two weeks on a beach, I needed something more. And I decided, I met John Blashford Snell, who was the founder of Operation Rally, which is a charity that sends kids often in their gap year um, they usually age 17 to 23 and they send them off to a developing country to perhaps build a village school help with teaching do something and I thought gosh you know what I'd love to do that and so fast forward I became the publicity officer for an expedition to Borneo with Rally International and I, when I got there, though, I, I thought I was going to be like living this life with a, I was going to take photographs and I was going to be writing stories in the jungle and I would have a sort of lovely linen suit and, you know, <laughs> trouser suit and I would, you know, have a camera. And in fact, I ended up living in a sweaty dormitory with a load of army squaddies. <laughs> it was a bit Which of a was probably call. quite a good rebasing of um, things. Do you know what? It was really good for me. Really good for me. Um, we had 140 teenagers. We were there in the jungle um, in small groups. We had guys from the British Army helping us. And we had some SAS guys and some Gurkhas who taught us how to live in the jungle for three months. At first, I had a bit of a meltdown because there I had been with my company car in London, my own house, could do whatever I wanted and suddenly I was being told I couldn't stray from camp without telling somebody that I was going or going with someone I couldn't there was no communications this was pre-mobile phone the only communication that we had was by wind up radio and slinging a wire into a palm tree uh, there was no privacy if we were actually in the jungle I had to I had to tie up a hammock above the ground. I had to make sure that my shoes were upside down, shake them out before I put them on in case there was something nasty in them. Bitten to death by mosquitoes. I loved it. I was listening to birds singing, saw insects, amazing flowers. We helped villagers, you know, build fishing jetties and we helped put in a water supply on a remote island where the village women had had to walk for five kilometres with a big barrel of water on their heads before I was put in charge of a project to put in a water supply. A civil engineer came and drew something on the blackboard and then went away. I and 15 teenagers had to make sense of this and some plastic piping <laughs> and do it. So you said, get on with this. Yes. And suddenly this seemed like a worthwhile thing to do. Right. We had no entertainment, we had no transport, we had no, we had to build, a, we had to get wood each day to build a fire, we had to make our own food, we had to barter with the locals because they didn't have a money economy to get fresh food. 
suddenly, I suppose this was what I'd been looking for, I didn't realise. I have to say, if I can tell this story, a very funny thing happened. I'd been out there for nearly three months and there I was sitting in a very sweaty T-shirt, a pair of shorts and some rubber flip-flops covered in mosquito bites and we didn't have the water supply in yet so I wasn't terribly fresh. And the mail boat came and when the mail came, it was so exciting that we would all get our letters and then we would all sit in a circle and wait till everyone was there and then we would all open our letters. And it was a terribly emotional moment um, when everyone opens a letter from home. Um, People were opening letters from their mums and dads and girlfriends and boyfriends and I got a very small envelope this time, very thin, opened it up and inside was a bill from the cafe at Harvey Nichols for a champagne, a coffee and a croissant and a post-it note stuck on it. And it was from my best girlfriend who said, see what you're missing, darling. <laughs> and it made Incredibly me Incredibly symbolic so in a way, wasn't it, of, of your previous life and where you were at that moment. Absolutely. And it was such a contrast. And I looked at it and I thought... There was a time when I would have thought that was the height of happiness. So what, what effect did it have on you? How did it change your outlook? I came back to my house and I looked at all my possessions and I thought, when, when we'd been in the jungle, when it was someone's birthday, we used to wrap a tube of toothpaste in some banana leaves and give it to someone as a present and they'd be thrilled with that or give them a dump of a pencil and they were happy with that because it was all we had in the jungle. And I looked around at my house and I had so many possessions. The hard thing for me was I had made an arrangement to go back to work They had given me three months off as a sabbatical and I had signed an agreement that I would not leave. I would go back to work for at least two years before leaving. And so I had to and I I put proper clothes on and tights and makeup and went back to the office. And I've never felt more of a fraud than I did then. Mm -hmm. But I'd made that arrangement that let me have three months off on full pay. But I had changed. Mm. I was a completely different person. Mm. I kept it up for about six months. I remember going in each day and instead of that wonderful feeling of joy I used to have going to work, I used to come up the stairs saying, it will be all right, it will be all right, it will be all right, but it wasn't, was not. And so I left, finally realised it was time to go. And I wanted to be creative and I wanted to do something else. So I left and went back to university and studied photography and became a photographer. We often wonder how events shape our lives, and for me this illustrates how if you take that leap, if you follow your instinct, it sparks a new purpose and realisation about who you are. But it's also a challenge to give up the security of a job, and Francine goes on to talk about how that change of direction led her to be able to find a new sense of enjoyment in her life. Well, what was great about photography was that as journalists discover when you are allowed to go and photograph someone and usually it was uh, for a a story for magazines um, often it's because they've been through some particularly bad time 
because I was older, because I was in my 40s, I wasn't a kind of young Jack the Lad photographer. I was obviously older and I would be more empathetic with, for instance, a series I had to do on women who'd had difficult births or people who had been through terribly tragic experiences and perhaps had found religion. I had to photograph people who had found God through something. And so I would talk to them. To take a good photograph, you can't just go in, shove the camera in their face and say, that's it, thank you, and walk out. I would talk to people and sort of draw out the reason that I was there to get that good photograph, to get a good portrait of someone. You can't, you know, someone's going to tell you about the time they found their husband dead. It's not very good to just do a nice photograph of them, you know, having a cup of tea. You need to get that emotion Mm. coming through. And also, I could tell stories that I wanted to tell. I got involved with a charity for street children in Colombia, and I went to photograph them and got to know them and got involved with the charity. And so I used the photography to tell their story. So yes, photographies are, you know, used in the right way as a fantastic tool. So if I take you right back to your upbringing, how do you think that influenced you and your career? I had an interesting upbringing because I had my parents, I was the eldest of four children. My parents didn't have a lot of money. My father was 20 years older than my mother and came from the Caribbean. He came from Barbados. He actually came before the war. He wasn't a Windrush, but he suffered quite a bit of, you know, racial discrimination. He was brown skinned. And so that was something that I didn't become aware of until I was a little bit older. But also, culturally, he was, bless him, and I loved him very much, but he, culturally, he was a West Indian and he had lots and lots and lots of affairs, which meant that my poor mother had to bring up four children on very little money, sometimes not knowing where her husband was. When he came home, he was wonderful, but when he wasn't there, life was a bit tough. And I remember, perhaps at too young an age, my mother confiding in me and telling me whatever you do, you must be independent. You must never, ever depend on anyone else. You are on your own. And I think I never forgot that. And there was a fear in me that if I ever stopped achieving, stopped, you know, getting the job that I wanted and working hard, that something awful would happen to me. And I think it probably affected my uh, uh, attitude to relationships. I mean, I did find someone eventually when I was 45, I got married and very happily, thank you. But it did definitely, my life was about being, I must support myself. I must be independent. I cannot rely on anyone else. My mother kind of, perhaps not consciously, but unconsciously instilled that in me. I mean, do you look back on that and think, actually, that was something which almost gave me an asset? Or do you think it was something that actually fundamentally changed the way you grew up and the decisions you made? It definitely unconsciously made me choose paths that perhaps shied me away from trusting men. Definitely did not trust them. They weren't people that supported and helped you. They were people that, um, yeah, you couldn't trust. So that probably affected me in a way. I never, ever wanted to be married. I never wanted to have children. I saw what happened to my mother. And that way, I, you know, there is a regret, definitely, that it meant that I didn't have any children because of that. Um, I mean, I don't cry myself to sleep at night because I have fantastic nephews and nieces. But yeah, so I think it did, that did affect me. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And do, do you think 
looking back, because it's easy to do these things retrospectively or easier than it is at the time, do you think that it played a part in the decisions you made in your career in terms of what you pursued and the way you pursued it? Definitely, definitely. Every time I came to any sort of crossroads, I mean, I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but now looking back, you know, should I take this job, take that job, pursue this relationship, that relationship, um, or not a relationship, each time taking the path towards independence. So, that, yes, that was definitely, I think my mother's words rang in my ear. You know, she was, she had to work hard to keep us together and I wasn't going to be in her situation ever. I'm just reflecting back on that moment when you were at Country Living and you felt that you couldn't keep doing this kind of work that the advertisers wanted you to do and that kind of direction of the magazine. Do you think in any way in the background, you know, what happened in your upbringing made you stronger in not wanting to change your philosophy? Definitely. Yes, I do. I didn't think it at the time. I didn't think it had anything to do with my upbringing. It's weird how you don't, isn't it? Um, But yes, I mean, I admired my mother enormously. Um, And she was alive at the time. And when I told her, you know, what I was going to do, she was terribly excited for me and gave me every bit of support you could possibly imagine. But definitely I can now relate it back to, you know, she missed out on things because of having children, of being married. She regretted never learning to play the piano. Certain things she told me and made it clear. She loved us, don't get it wrong, she loved us. But there were certain things she couldn't do because she was restricted. And I thought, I never want that. I never want to be restricted. But of course, after a while, that constant wanting to achieve, keeping on wanting to... Prove yourself. Exactly, stay on top. Where's it down? It wears you down. You can do it when you're young, but later on, I got a bit exhausted by it all, actually. Trying to, and a thing called age creeps in. Everything was fine when I was young and beautiful. Suddenly, I wasn't. Well, not suddenly, it creeps up on you. You're not, you know, the youngest star. You're not the golden girl anymore. And I did then, after enjoying myself as a photographer, 2008, the crash hit. Work got a bit thin and I was offered a job in a a publishing company, a book publishing company. They'd been one of my clients and it all seemed, gosh, this seems like a good idea. Instead of having to try and find the work as a freelance photographer, it's always very attractive to have a nice regular salary at the end of each month. By this time I was 56 and to be offered a very good job, I have to say, in the company and a very free reign to direct illustrated books, everything that I wanted. But of course, book publishing is very different from magazine publishing. It's not actually as creative. And then the other thing that crept in was that everyone that I worked with was 20 years younger than me. And there's a very different attitude. Someone in their 40s or late or 30s has a very different view of the world to someone who's 55. And I can really see, when I was 35, I thought someone at 55 was old, but I wasn't quite ready to be considered old yet. And my ideas were considered old-fashioned. That was hurtful because I'd always been top of the tree and ahead of the game. Yeah. I really felt that 
women over 50 liked books and wanted exciting original ideas were not necessarily just because you're over 50. You don't necessarily take saga holidays and suddenly need incontinence pants. Um, we're still seeing the world and doing exciting things, but 35-year-olds don't see it that way. And so I was realising that I was coming up against this age barrier. I mean, the issue of age prejudice is really starting to become quite an issue, isn't it? I think it is. I think um, perhaps people of 55... It's not so bad for them now. Um, We're talking 10 years ago now. People in their 60s um, are considered by people, you know, in their 30s and 40s being ancient. And I think uh, that attitude prevails in advertising and to a certain extent in magazines, you know, unless they're absolutely aimed at that age and there are only very few that are. I think a lot of people think that we're just ready to sit down with a cup of tea and a biscuit and Midsummer Murders. As somebody who is, you know, in the heart of a creative world, how did that? How did that feel? It was terrible, actually. Every day I would go to work and feel like I was fighting a battle for all the people who were older. Every idea I came up with, people would roll their eyes and think, "Well, why does anyone want that?" Uh, you know, a, a book about gardening. Gardening. You know, they didn't even know what it was. So I got a bit, um, yeah, I got a bit depressed. And then um, it must have come through a bit because um, I got made redundant. And that was a bit of a shock. I mean, do you believe that there was age prejudice in in that decision? I do, yes. Yes, I do. I I know it. I know it was. Mm. I was just not chiming with what they wanted to do. Mm. And other people got made redundant not just in that company but in other companies mm. when they hit a certain mm. age and I, it became and and that was a kind of whoa oh dear hang on yes I've been saying this thing about age but it was really happening to me now what now given talked about feeling top of the tree when you're editing country living and and all the sort of glamour that went around that I guess that must have been quite a quite a hard thing to take in that context It was. I was used, all my life, I have always been relatively successful. And to be rejected, and pretty much conclusively because of my age, I think, that was a, oh dear, that's a shock. So is this it? Is this it? Mm. I'm not going to be that successful, whizzy, glamorous person anymore. It's kind of over. And that was a horrible feeling. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm I'm not ready to retire. I also had to earn a living. I was 59, wasn't ready to give it all up. I didn't have a pension. Mm. Um, Mm. And people don't give you jobs at that age. Malcolm, my husband, was um, he was also at the same point in his life. What do you do? And it's a scary thing. So, yeah. So, and, and so obviously that was a fundamental point in your, in your life. What happened? What effect did that have? And how has that led you to what you're doing today? Okay, so, well, I was, yeah, I didn't have very much, I had a bit of redundancy money. Um, I had to think, what on earth am I going to do? I just do not know. Um, and like a lot of things in life, things come as a slight accident. I did like drawing. One of my ex 
colleagues at the publishing company. She knew that I could draw, so she commissioned me to do some illustrations uh, for, a, for a book at my old company, partly as a cost-cutting measure on their part because they knew I would do it cheaper. <laughs> but I thought, but I did it as a challenge for something to do. So I did these gardening illustrations, which I enjoyed immensely. Then I happened to be... One of those nights where you think, oh, I don't want to go out, it's raining, it's cold, but a friend of mine was um, having a little party to do something. So I went along, got introduced to a chap who said, oh, what do you do? And I thought, oh, who am I? I don't know what I do. You see, that's a very difficult thing when you've always been a success. So I just said, well, um, I've just finished illustrating a book for want of something better to say. And he said, oh, I wish I could draw. And I said, well, anyone can draw. And this started a sort of um, tennis match of, he said, no, I can't. And I said, yes, you can. And he said, no, I can't. I must have had too much to drink because I can't remember giving him my phone number. But the next day he phoned to me and said, I really like what you said about teaching people who think they can't draw to draw. Will you come and talk to me about it? Because I have a company where I do classes all over London and we don't have anyone to teach art. So I went in to see him, not knowing what to expect. And um, I took my sketchbook and showed him how he could draw. And he got all his team around. And I showed him my little idea that I had about how people can, anyone can draw. And he said, OK, I want you to do a class. Here's the contract. And I thought it was for an hour. So I worked out a plan for an hour. And then I looked at the contract again. And it was for a whole day, six hours of teaching. And I thought, ah, I've never done this before. But I worked it out. I did some mm-hmm. practice sessions with some friends, worked it all out. And that was five years ago. And I now run this little thing. And it's called Art Splash, yes. isn't it? Art we call Splash our London. company Art Splash, my friend and I, who I was at art school with. And we do it together. And we teach in central London. We teach in Devon. We've just come back from Spain. This thing has just taken off organically partly by word of mouth, by doing a bit of Facebooking, and we teach people to draw who think they can't draw. And one of the things that's come out of it is that a lot of people come to us because they're often at a point in their lives where they don't know what they want to do next or they've been through a hard time, and they find drawing a really relaxing, meditative activity. Almost therapeutic. Yes. And and they can achieve something because we show Mm. them how to do it. And it's a creative thing, Mm. and it's easy to do mm. um, it really is um, mm. we help people I mean we, we then develop if they want to come to further classes and learn watercolour or other things as well they can but that initial how to draw it's just been amazing from that moment do, do you think that what you're doing now is almost in some ways the, the zenith of your career the, the fulfilment of all the things you ever wanted to do last week when I was in Spain and I had six students and we were sitting in the sun in the most gorgeous location. And I thought, my goodness, I'm so lucky. This couldn't be better, really. I'm in a lovely place with lovely people doing a creative thing, earning money and hopefully not messing up the environment too much. Um, yeah, I think I'm really lucky and happy. And I couldn't see that five years ago when I was, I thought, I'm washed up. It's over. I'm old, done, fed up. And now here I am, look, doing something creative and fun and helping people and giving people so much pleasure with watching people blossom. Yes. So lovely. Yes. So in in your own words, I think you said you don't think you had any 
very significant adversity in your life. But you obviously had that issue in your childhood. You had the trip to Borneo. And obviously you had the rejection at a, an older age at the publishing company. So I think, you know, in most people's terms, that is adversity. Would you say that has taught you anything? What have you learned from, from those experiences? I think, for instance, from Borneo, we learned about ourselves. We learned how to deal with nothing and to appreciate how people who don't have as much as we have can still be happy. I think that has taught me a lot, that you can be happy with nothing. That day when I received the letter with a post-it note, you know, my friend spending 10 quid at that time, you know, on a glass of champagne. I hadn't spent 10 pounds in two, three weeks out in Borneo, just been living on fresh fruit. I learned that I could live with much less than I have. Acquiring possessions is not important. I also learned that never judge people. We had people there who came from very privileged backgrounds, you know, definitely uh, teenagers who came from very affluent families who were coming out to do their gap year with kids who were on a what we call YDP program, Youth Development Project. So I had a kid of 17 who had three children, had been in institutions all his life and had a really hard life, but wanting to make something himself, sleeping in a hammock next to a kid from a public school and watching and listening to them talking about whether God exists or not. I found a wonderful experience, so levelling out there, you know, and those two people would never have met under different circumstances and would not have had that conversation. I hope I don't judge people. I love meeting people. So I think I've learned that. I've learned that, very yes, very simple things can make you happy. Growing some flowers in my garden can make me very, very happy. Drawing, sitting down, just doing a little sketch of that teapot make me happy. And that's quite a revelation because I always thought because I had this drive from when I was very young that I could not be poor I mustn't be a failure that had to come with somehow you know you have to be very successful and work hard and achieve. And do you think that the rejection from the publishing company almost reinforced that simple approach well, it sent me spiralling down into a bit of a depression. Not that fortunately, you know, I was depressed. And when you, I know you would never say this, but when you're depressed, it does make you look at things in an utterly different way. You have to unpack everything and you see what makes you who you are. And certainly from that point of view, I had to look at who I was and where I was going. And if I had been just, you know, blithely going on before I took that job, you know, as a photographer, which was a nice life, thank you. And if it had all been going on nicely, I probably would have been rather more superficial, I think. It's when you get out of your comfort zone and when you're forced out of your comfort zone that you actually learn something. If, if everything's just going all nicely, you don't progress and you, you get a bit smug and a bit comfortable. And I think it's only these things that slap you in the face yeah. that make you look at yourself. Look a bit deeper into exactly. things, yeah. Yes. And what would you say to anybody out there who's facing adversity in any particular way? What would you, what advice would you give them? I'd say you can't see it now, but this is a good thing. It'll make you stronger. It'll make you look at yourself. And one thing is for sure in this life, nothing, nothing lasts forever. So even though you're going through a horrible, horrible time and you think that you can't get out of this terrible situation that you're in, whether it's depression, whether it's no money, whether it's whatever it is, it will not last. Mm. And if you can remember that, if you can somehow believe that, you'll get out of it. 
And I would 100% endorse that from my own experience. Being in that moment when things aren't good for you can be really challenging, but it doesn't last forever. No, and it's very hard to believe that when you're in it because it's so uh, all-encompassing. You just think, I'm I'm never going to get out of this pit, but you will. And listen to other people who say that you will. It is true. It will not last forever. And I think then then you can start climbing out of it. Mm. So bringing us full circle to what you're doing today, I've obviously had a personal experience of, of your teaching skills. How could people get in touch with you? Well, artsplashlondon.co.uk is mm-hmm. our website mm-hmm. and we run courses all over the place. We're doing some in Surrey, Berkshire, London, Devon. We're very happy to see anybody. And the one thing I would say is a lot of people, immediately I say I teach people who think they can't draw to draw. People never hear that last bit and their immediate reaction is, I can't draw. Oh, I can't draw. I'm not talented at all. And the, please don't think that. It's something awful that we were taught at school. You're either good at art or you're not good at art. Well, there's no good at art. It's not a science. Everybody can draw. Um, it's just that we, we suddenly become aware that other people are judging our drawing. And, um, we can help you make sense of that. There are people who will listen to this in America and, and Europe and far and wide. Are you going to move beyond the shores of the United Kingdom? We'll go anywhere. We've just come back from Spain. We can take this anywhere. What's great about drawing is it's it's a non-language skill, so we mm. can take it anywhere. Mm. Um, of course, yeah. 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 We're happy well, to. I certainly found it personally very liberating, so I'd encourage anyone listening to this to uh, to give it a go. Everybody can draw. We can just We just bring it out of you. Thank you ever so much for your time. It's been really, really enjoyable. Um, Thank you. It's been fun talking about myself. <laughs> So what can we draw from this episode? The first thing to my mind is that the adversity in our lives is often not one big thing, but a series of smaller events throughout our life, which shape how we relate to the world. I was really struck by Francine's comment that despite the apparent glamour and success of her life as an editor, she felt she was losing her identity and her values. As she said, she never felt more of a fraud. The drive for achievement is sometimes hard-baked into our DNAs at an early age for a variety of probably unconscious reasons. And it often takes something quite significant to question whether this produces the happiness we're searching for. The recognition that, as she said, nothing is forever and that rejection even later on in life, does not mean the end. Indeed, with an open mind and a passion, you can often find new and rewarding paths to tread, as beautifully illustrated by Francine's journey into now teaching art. So whatever you're doing, wherever you think you're going, it's worth pausing to ask the question, who am I? Is my life really heading in the right direction? Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode, where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.